Section 1 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 8, May 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in December 2017. The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 8, Number 5, May 1897. A Winter Voyage Through the Straits of Magellan by the late Admiral R. W. Meade, U.S. Navy. Some twenty-six years ago, I received peremptory orders to assume command of the Narragansett and sail forthwith to the Pacific Station. We left Sandy Hook on the first blast of a nor'wester, which followed on the heels of a March equinoctial, being the first steamer of the navy to leave the port of new york with stunsails set alow and aloft and no steam up whether it was this tribute to boreas that brought us good fortune i do not know but we made a famous run to the line where neptune having come on board and duly shaved and ducked several score greenhorns our luck for the time deserted us, and for the next two or three weeks the ship fanned along with light airs and tedious calms, until the fortieth day out saw us safely in the beautiful harbour of Rio de Janeiro, tinkering away at a wretched old pair of engines, which had broken down when we tried to use them to steam into harbour. Resuming our cruise, we were favoured by a sea as smooth as glass, and with the most charming weather imaginable. But there is a cry of, Land Ho! from aloft, and what we see proves to be Mount Wood, a solitary peak of moderate elevation on the coast of Patagonia, and in the vicinity of the very port San Julian, where Magellan wintered his ships, about two hundred miles north of the Straits. As we approach the land, it seems a pleasanter-looking coast than many I have seen, and, though, no doubt, we see it under most favourable circumstances of wind and weather, I incline to the belief that the popular idea in regard to the dreariness and forbidding character of the shores of Patagonia is a delusion which the commerce of the future will dispel. The day after we made Mount Wood, the weather became thick and the wind squally, and not being able to see the land we ran by the lead when near cape virgins by our reckoning the barometer commenced to rise now a rise in the glass in this latitude fifty degrees south the barometer having previously stood low is an almost certain indication of a change of wind if not bad weather so all hands were called to reef topsails scarcely had the second reef been taken in when the wind shifted in a moment from the north, landward, north-north-east to west-south-west, and blew in furious gusts, the horizon suddenly cleared, the mists were dispelled, the air became cold and raw, and by the rays of the setting sun, it was now three o'clock of a June day, we saw in the distance Cape Virgins, with its abrupt, cliff-like shore, sixteen miles dead to windward of us thus far we had made the voyage from new york entirely under sail ships of war not being expected to steam unless necessary we managed with the aid of fore and aft canvas to crawl slowly to windward and there being a bright full moon 
crossed the great sarmiento bank south of cape virgins where the rise of the tide is forty-three feet and by eleven o'clock that night were safely at anchor in the straits some four miles west of magellan's landfall to make our voyage intelligible it will here be necessary to describe the general character of the strait it is safe to say that there is no other part of the world where as a rule the weather is so tempestuous and dangerous as it is off cape horn there old ocean exerts his full sovereignty and the winds and the waves are almost ceaselessly raging and surging in wild tumult against a bleak forbidding iron-bound coast the climate of cape horn is the most wretched on earth fierce storms of rain hail and snow drift in from the atlantic and arctic and pacific oceans in everlasting succession broken only by the furious willywaws or cape horn squalls the real difficulties of the voyage commence at cape froward the southern extremity of our continent which is one hundred seventy miles from cape virgins here the weather undergoes an entire change and no matter how pleasant it has been before the mariner may expect to don his sou'wester the moment he doubles this precipitous headland worthy of terminating so grand a continent for steamers and smart sailing schooners the voyage through is merely one of ordinary care and prudence but for square-rigged sailing craft the difficulties are almost insuperable yet one large sailing ship the frigate fiskard went through in the astonishing time of seventeen days from cape virgins to cape pillar the distance by the usual route is three hundred fifteen nautical miles and to traverse this from the eastward every course between west-north-west and south-south-east must at one time or other be steered and as the wind is persistently west or south-west or always dead ahead the difficulties to the sailing ship are readily seen moreover the character of the strait changes materially as the voyager goes west for to the eastward of cape froward as a rule the weather is better the sun shines brighter anchorages are more convenient and the dangers of navigation fewer in number the strait may be geographically divided as follows one from cape virgins to elizabeth island the termination of the second narrows ninety-five miles where the tides are very strong the rise and fall extraordinary forty-three feet the land comparatively low and entirely destitute of timber the weather generally good and anchorage is safe and convenient two from elizabeth island where trees first make their appearance and the land commences to rise to cape froward eighty miles here anchorages are frequent and safe timber is plentiful the tides are weak not exceeding five feet and the weather is comparatively pleasant three from cape froward to cape cod fifty miles with anchorages few and far between currents strong and in places dangerous weather almost constantly tempestuous mountains of great height and bare of vegetation their peaks covered with snow or ice natives savage and dangerous and voyaging even in steamers attended with risk lastly from cape cod to the pacific ninety miles 
where there are few anchorages and some of these as port mercy dangerous in the extreme there is very little tide the weather is stormy nearly all the year and the high mountains are covered with eternal snow the land aptly named by sir john narborough ye land of desolation when daylight came on the morning after our arrival we found ourselves anchored off a long low split of shingle called by the english navigators dungeness from some fancied resemblance to the headland of that name in the english channel to the eastward was cape virgins not unlike the chalk cliffs of england to the westward loomed cape possession a bold dark-looking headland while to the south dimly visible in the grey of the morning was magellan's land of fire a low indented coast just rising above the distant horizon the straits are sixteen miles wide at this point following the usual rule of the mariner in these parts we had prepared beforehand our tables for tides sunrise and sunset the light yards and topgallant masts were struck all stunsails and booms sent on deck and everything made snug aloft for steaming against the strong westerly winds we expected to encounter but our apprehensions of bad weather proved groundless the southwester had died out and the day broke calm and comparatively clear the sun shone out of a leaden-hued sky with just warmth enough to be pleasant and weighing our anchor with a favourable flood tide we were soon passing the land at the rate of thirteen knots an hour though the engineer would have gone wild if any one had suggested to him the possibility of the narragansett's engines driving her over eight knots the rise and fall of the tide in this part of the strait is very great it is no less than forty-three feet and a singular circumstance attends the changes of the tidal stream the flood which runs with great velocity to the westward commences about three hours before it is low water by the beach and so here we were rapidly going west with the flood tide while apparently the water was everywhere ebbing by the shore another feature in the tides east of cape froward is that the time of high water grows later as the ship proceeds to the westward so that it is possible in a fast steamer starting from cape virgins with a favourable flood to reach the chilean settlement at sandy point one hundred ten miles in a daylight run in june which corresponds to our december as we pass cape possession the wind draws in fresh gusts from the northward and westward and we set the fore and aft sails which increases the vessel's speed to fourteen knots we rapidly approach the first narrows for the low cliff-like shores on each side are now plainly visible and all hands are on deck to witness the terrible tide race we have heard so much about by ten o'clock we are fairly in the narrow pass which is a perfectly straight reach of perpendicular wall-like shore nine miles long by two miles broad with very deep water precipitous beach at low tide and a straight rapid current of eight knots an hour we are fairly flying along the land and by noon have made over sixty nautical miles since we started we are clear of the narrows dimly visible astern and skirting the southern shore of philip bay by two o'clock we are nearly up with the second narrows 
but now the flood tide is done and it would be the merest folly to attempt to force the narragansett through against the ebb so we give up all hope of reaching sandy point this evening and steam slowly in for the anchorage under gregory's summit on the cliff abreast of the ship we observe a native camp and see some animals grazing on the downs soon there are other signs of life and a dozen indians come sweeping along on horseback they are splendidly mounted and seem a fine athletic race now they are on the edge of the bluff making signals to us but it is too late to communicate with the shore and moreover the character of ye native hereabouts is open to suspicion though to do the indians simple justice they have been rendered hostile to all white men by two centuries of brutality at the hands of the spaniards and their descendants as a people these patagonians are less savage and intractable than the fuegians or natives of the southern and western shores there are in truth some very striking differences between these two races and it may be well to allude to them here in the first place the term patagonian unless explained is apt to mislead for the whole of the continent south of the parallel of forty degrees is known as patagonia and is geographically divided by the mountains into eastern and western patagonia inhabited as far as we know by two very different races though dr darwin in his narrative of the beagle's voyage in eighteen thirty one declares his conviction that they are the same race and that the present difference is caused by environment this is probable as food climate and environment are doubtless responsible for most racial differences but strictly speaking the patagonians are the natives of eastern patagonia for the inhabitants of the islands along the smythe channel north of magellan straits and western patagonia as far as the gulf of peñas are of the same family as the natives of tierra del fuego and are invariably designated as fuegians the patagonians then inhabit the northern side of the strait east of cape froward and the chain of mountains known as the southern andes and are probably of the same family as the araucanians so justly celebrated for their prowess in their encounters with the steel-clad warriors of spain in the sixteenth century of these patagonians one explorer who passed some time with them says quote, they are very tall finely formed and athletic with jet-black eyes black coarse hair thick lips and a skin of reddish-brown colour they often paint themselves in a hideous manner and then grease themselves all over they approve the early fashions garden of eden and so on with occasionally a mantle of skin thrown over their shoulders they worship a god of good and a god of evil and all that happens is considered as directly sent by one or the other of these deities they do not believe in the final salvation of the wicked they are averse to christianity uncontrollable in a state of anger and passionately fond of strong drink their favorite food is horse-flesh and the blood of animals and though they have cooking utensils they prefer to eat their meat raw they subsist by hunting the guanaco an animal never seen in patagonia to the westward of cape froward but very numerous on the plains of eastern patagonia these people live either in camp or on horseback 
and do not seem to be fishermen, at least they are not known to have canoes. Their bows and arrows betoken that they live by hunting, as their arrowheads are both poisoned and unpoisoned, and it is not at all likely they would waste the latter on their enemies. Even so late as 1871 it was said they possessed few firearms. They are a bold, warlike and fearless race, possessing certain magnanimous traits, and in this they differ widely from the natives of the southern and western shores of Magellan Straits. The same explorers as of the Fuegians, quote, they are an ugly, savage race, who in hard times become cannibals, and their most splendid feasts are characterized by dirt, filth, and misery. Christianity seems to have had no power among them. End quote. Everyone who has voyaged in these waters regards the Fuegians as treacherous and dangerous. They are short in stature and of a dirty copper color, their only clothing, even in the coldest weather, being a seal-skin or deer-skin worn with the hair outward, and this solitary garment, vermin included, they will readily exchange for a little biscuit or tobacco. Darwin admits their cannibalism, which he excuses on the plea of necessity. When pressed by hunger, they kill first their old women, and then their dogs, because, said one of them, doggy, he catch otter, old woman, she no catchy otter. But usually they live by fishing and what they can gather from the rocks, as, for instance, snails and mussels, but they will eagerly devour putrid seal's flesh and the most disgusting offal. They live in huts constructed in a very primitive way of the branches of trees, and have no articles of traffic except their weapons and implements, which are sometimes bought as curiosities. They are thievish, cunning, and greedy, and great caution is requisite in dealing with them. Attempts have been made by English missionaries to lessen their barbarism, but with no success a fact which is the more singular as even the fiji islanders have been rendered subject to the civilizing influences of christianity captain main who recently resurveyed these waters in h b m ship nassau states that these people pass most of their time in canoes and make voyages from the straits to the gulf of peñas a distance of many miles Though usually but few canoes are seen passing through, it is extraordinary how rapidly a hundred or more will gather together if they can see an opportunity for attacking boats, small vessels, or a wreck. How the rendezvous is known is a mystery, says Captain Maine, but fires are seen smoking all along the coast for miles, and out of every creek a canoe will be seen shooting toward the rallying point, but there is no romance whatever about their appearance, for instead of the graceful shape of the Indian canoe, these miserable craft are simply planks tied together with thongs or fibres of trees, without the slightest regard to foreign, and instead of being urged along by paddles, they are rowed by oars rudely made of pieces of board tied to the end of a short pole. On the bottom of the boat, in the middle, is a small fire, and on each side of it are crouched six or eight men, women, or children, according to the size of the craft. These are generally, as we have said, almost entirely naked, 
the women appearing to care less about clothing than the men. A very striking difference between these people and the Patagonians was noticed by Captain Fitzroy in 1830, and subsequently by Captain Maine in 1867. This is that while the Patagonian will generally drink all the rum he can get, and is always more or less drunk when near a settlement, the Fuegian cannot be persuaded to drink at all, and if he is enticed into tasting strong liquor of any kind, will always put it away with a wry face. In fact, this is the solitary redeeming trait in these savages, who are indeed to be dreaded, for they have frequently attacked and overcome the crews of passing vessels. The next morning we were under way with the first of the flood, and steamed around Cape Gregory into the second narrows. Up to Elizabeth Island the scenery was as tame and uninteresting as possible, but now for the first time we caught sight of the distant mountains to the southward, with their snowy peaks and glaciers. Passing the island, we descried the clearing above the settlement at Punta Arenas, and soon after the village was in full view, showing to much advantage its white houses and fences dotting the hillsides. It is now a colony of Chile, originally founded as a penal settlement in 1849, when the government removed its post from Port Famine, 28 miles to the southward. A dreadful tragedy took place in 1851, the convicts rising above the garrison, seizing several vessels, and murdering the governor and his subordinates with circumstances of atrocious cruelty, since which time the practice of sending felons there has been abandoned. The village consists of about one hundred houses built upon ground which slopes gradually back from the water. The governor was very enthusiastic about the success of the colony, and showed some gold nuggets found in the little stream east of the village. The attractions of Sandy Point were insufficient to detain us long, and on the next evening we left by moonlight, steaming slowly for that magnificent headland, Cape Froward. The morning sun shone bright and beautiful over the lofty snow-capped hills, while in the valleys, which were entirely free from snow, a flood of golden light upon the dark green foliage of the forest rendered the landscape very charming. The shore, after passing Cape San Isidro, is dotted with numerous little bays, in one of which, known as Jack Harbour, the celebrated Bougainville in 1764 moored his ships and cut timber for the French colony on the Malouin, now the Falkland Islands. The cove, which is hardly larger than an ordinary wet dock, is a romantic-looking nook, sheltered completely, and to add to its beauty a sparkling mountain rivulet tumbles noisily into the sea at its head. At noon we had reached our extreme southern limit and were off Cape Froward. Though up to this time the weather had been beautifully clear and pleasant, the moment we rounded this magnificent terminus of our continent, we felt a change. The bright sky gave place to an overcast leaden-hued one, the air grew colder, and for the first time since entering the strait we felt the willy-war. These winds are peculiar to this region, the name being corrupted from the term world's awas of the old navigators and seal-hunters. They are rotary squalls which blow at times with indescribable fury, 
seeming apparently to come from every point of the compass there is one peculiarity about these squalls which seems to have escaped notice hitherto this is the singularly mournful whistling sound like the sighing of an aeolian harp which invariably precedes and follows them cape forward fifty three degrees fifty four minutes south seventy one degrees eighteen minutes west is the southern extremity of the continent of america it is one of the grandest headlands in the world and i say this after a lengthened experience at sea let those who have seen the sea face of gibraltar imagine a thousand feet added to the rock and they will have an idea of the grandeur of cape forward but we are now on the home stretch for san francisco as the ship doubles the pitch of the cape and edges closer and closer to the eastern shore to avoid the fury of the west wind of the force of which the white caps and heavy sea in the middle of froward reach give indications it was quite dark when the ship reached fortescue bay and anchored this is the most secure anchorage in the strait and may eventually become the principal shopping point of mail steamers there is an outer and an inner harbor the latter known as port gallant being accessible for ordinary steam vessels the view from the anchorage is very fine there are several prettily wooded islets separating fortescue bay from port gallant while mount cross covered with snow rises gradually to a height of three thousand feet and completely overlooks the anchorage a few weeks before our arrival off port gallant it had been the scene of a tragical occurrence the captain and three men of an english vessel the propontis having been murdered by the fuegians while obtaining water on our arrival the fuegians had apparently deserted that part of the strait the governor had evidently deemed it impossible to apprehend the wretches concerned in these frightful murders the fate of these unfortunate men should be a warning to small merchant vessels the next day was mostly consumed in making the run from port gallant to borgia bay the wind being adverse and the tide strongly against us but the beautiful scenery compensated for the tediousness of the trip it was by far the finest that we had yet seen the serrated ranges of mountains on cordoba peninsula covered with snow and glaciers sparkling in the sunlight are very grand the character of the strait seems to change entirely when abreast of jerome channel at the entrance to which cordoba peninsula apparently blocks up the strait which now assumes all the grandeur and beauty of an alpine lake the ship anchored in the deep waters of byron's island bay under the shadows of borgia mountain towering grandly three thousand feet above our heads a landing party soon woke the echoes of the mountain with the sharp crack of the rifle the sound reverberating in prolonged echoes the scenery on the mountain side is very picturesque but the ascent is made under difficulties the deep bay is thoroughly sheltered and to add to its beauty three sparkling rivulets fall into it at different points a peculiar feature of the place which is a favorite post office is the great number of boards nailed to the trees which serve as a rough log of the numerous vessels that in the last fifty years have touched here a very conspicuous one drew our attention 
It read, U.S. Sloop of War Decature, December 11th, 1854. All well. This ship had then been 80 days in the strait, and was finally towed through by the United States steamer Massachusetts, Captain R. W. Meade, father of the writer. Before leaving, the Narragansett's board, five days in the straits, all well, was nailed above the decatures. The trees at Borgia Bay differ from those at some other points, being of great girth and gnarled and stunted in their growth. As soon as the moon was up, the ship steamed westward past the bold cliff of El Morion, the helmet, and was at last fairly pointed for the great long reach to the Pacific. The lights and shadows reflected by the moon upon the dark waters of the strait, here almost unfathomable, the dark spots under the overhanging cliffs of the lofty mountains, and the flood of silver moonlight beyond, rendered the scene one of surpassing beauty. The night was calm and quiet, the stars overhead shone with the peculiar brilliancy of the high latitude, and everything promised for a quick run to the Pacific. At ten next morning we had passed Glacier Bay, and the chill, dreary coast between it and the Spanish Gulf with the unpronounceable name, Saltegua, when a change in the weather became apparent. At two o'clock in the afternoon the Pacific Ocean was only thirty-five miles off, but the long swell we now encountered, and the stormy appearance of the weather compelled us to choose between a port of refuge or a stormy night in the open strait. Port Churuka, on Desolation Island, seemed the best harbour, and the ship bore up for the narrow entrance. There being no bridge on the Narragansett, the captain took his place on the forecastle as pilot, the navigating lieutenant held the chart, and an old sailor had a tarpaulin over it to keep it from getting wet. Careful hands were in the chains and at the engine-room bell, and all hands were called to bring ship to anchor. The steamer was heading for two small rocky islets, about fifty yards apart, dimly visible through the sleet and mist of a driving squall. The surf broke furiously all along the rocky shore. "'Slow down,' says the captain from his lookout on the forecastle, and slow it is. No soundings. In truth, none could be found here with two hundred fathoms of line. In a few minutes a narrow channel is descried, leading apparently into the very bowels of the mountain, which towers thousands of feet above us. Port, from the forecastle. Port it is, sir, from the quartermaster at the wheel, and the ship's head flies to starboard, obedient to the helm. All hands are at their stations, both anchors ready, and the silence fore and aft is profound. We enter the passage, and the helm is alternately hard up and hard down as we thread our way through the narrow pass, scarce two hundred yards wide, bordered by rocks and islets upon which the sea roars and surges dismally. Now we emerge into an inland sea, which, in the thick weather, seems almost illimitable, the shores being perpendicular walls of rock two and three thousand feet in height. The vessel turns short round to port, and shoots ahead toward a little cove under the shadow of an immense mountain. By the mark, seventeen, comes from the chains, and the anchor is let go. 
hawsers are run from the ship to one of the few stunted trees to keep the vessel clear of the rocks and the narragansett is safely sheltered for the night sir john narborough spoke soberly and truly when he named this the isle of desolation nothing can be more grandly or profoundly desolate than the scenery in the neighbourhood of oldfield anchorage port Churuca. the term port is an entire misnomer for beyond two small coves where anchorage may be obtained in from fifteen to forty fathoms of water there is no bottom to be found with less than fifty or one hundred fathoms of line in many places there are no soundings at all the deep inlets of this inland sea are bordered by awful precipices broken by frightful chasms and ravines there are a few stunted trees along the beach but on the mountain side not even the usual moss or lichen nothing but bare slate-coloured savage-looking rocks covered with ice and snow the place is fully sheltered and all that night the ship lay profoundly quiet not a breath of air stirring though the roar of the sea and the whistling of the furious west wind outside could be distinctly heard a party left the ship before dark to explore the head of the little cove they found some signs of vegetation in the gully at the base of the cliff under which the ship was moored and one of the explorers collected a bouquet of fuegian flowers the sailors however looking rather toward the practical than the beautiful found a bed of fine mussels upon which we all regaled ourselves that evening the next morning the weather though overcast with rain squalls at intervals was sufficiently favourable to admit of an attempt to leave some of the officers seemed dubious of the narragansett's ability to clear the strait but the captain concluded to take the chances and at noon cape pillar was in sight on the port bow with a full head of steam and the fore and aft canvas the ship made good way and at two o'clock passed out of the strait and steered directly west for an offing but both the wind and sea were now rapidly rising at dark it was blowing a furious gale from the west-south-west with one of the most tremendous rolling seas i ever saw no chance to run back or find an anchorage in such weather as this at times the squalls of wind sleet and rain were so thick that we could not see a ship's length there was nothing to do now but to claw off shore under every inch of storm canvas the vessel could carry and trust to the engines to help us to gain an offing at eight o'clock that night the hatches fore and aft were securely battened down and the lee rail of the ship was under water as she struggled under sail and steam against the storm and sea dimly visible astern through the furious driving squalls was cape pillar eight miles distant on the lee beam were the black rocks of los apostoles the ship drifting slowly southward in dangerous proximity to them the wind veered constantly from point to point and the squalls came with blinding and terrific force but everything held well and the providence which watches over poor jack sent us a slant of wind which enabled us to make an offing during that dark dismal and anxious night for eight long days and nights this state of things continued the ship vainly struggling to get to the westward 
the squalls of sleet and snow never continuing long enough from southwest to enable the vessel to get north at all. On the eighth day the vessel was nearly as far south as the parallel of Cape Horn, with a fair prospect of being driven round the Cape altogether. There were but a few tons of coal left, and the ship was still 1,200 miles from Valparaiso. Affairs looked blue. Many of the men were worn out, exhausted by cold and fatigue. Several of the officers were in the same condition. But all ill fortune, as all good fortune, must at some period come to an end, and so it happened that the next day the wind shifted to the south, and with strong and favouring gales the old ship went rapidly north under a press of canvas, and in ten days was safely anchored in the harbour of Valparaiso. And so ended the Narragansett's winter voyage through the Straits of Magellan. End of section 1